Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When the carnival arrives in your town, this fella will be leading the parade. Playing his golden flute, he leads the parishioners through hardship and gloom into a bright and radiant future. Do you agree? I'm completely, 100%. Would you like to add to that? I would, that he's also a great writer, a great film producer, and he's here with us. He is Manish Pandey. Would you like to have him here? Lovely. How did you get here today? Uh, I caught a black cab. Oh, yep. I thought you were going to say I got the bus. <clears throat> no, I used the Get app, and a very nice man called Joe pulled up, and his father lives around the corner. So he says he's been running on empty at about midday every day. He comes out very early. So he said, this is great. He's going to go and see his dad and then spend the rest of the day trying to fill up. So we're recording this in the midst of a petrol disaster. Yes. But when this goes out, it'll probably be uh, you know 2026 (laughs) (laughs) and there'll be another disaster then it'll all be electric by then so this is a kind of an historic moment in podcasting isn't it i queued up for 10 minutes yesterday outside uh, tesco's and i thought this is all right this isn't too bad filled up my then i went back home and said to my wife I only queued up for 10 minutes, so give us your car and I'll go and do it. And then queued up for an hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> after my proud boast that yes, there's nothing can, to worry about. I can about. do this easily. Look, yeah. look at me. Yes, there we are. So Manish, what was your first introduction to the idea of transport and getting about? It was a bicycle. I had, everybody had a red chopper. I had a silver one. Chopper? Chopper. Yeah. The rally chopper. Drum brakes at the back. Do you remember it had a little kind of gear stick? Gear change yeah. in the set, centrally located. Love that. And so I went out with a good friend, Keith, and we rode to Basingstoke Town Centre. And there was a very, very, very steep hill approaching a traffic light. He pulled his brakes. I pulled mine. I'm right-handed. So you always grab the right caliper. And <laughs> those bikes, they're so heavy at the back. So this thing went up into the air. I got my head between the handlebars then the whole thing swung round and whacked me on the back of the head. That is my first memory. Well, curiously enough, I think that's an interesting warning about the chopper bicycle. My brothers had one each who were younger than me, probably the same age as you, and they and I tried it on a little hill in Blackheath. And I went round a corner and sort of let, tried to lean in the corner and the whole thing sort of gave way. And the next thing I knew, I was using my head as the brake to stop myself. So, yeah. yes, I don't think that... But that didn't put you off. I don't think choppers are good, but that hadn't put you off, though, man. Well, I love that bike. love that bike. But it, it's just, it's really, really back heavy. And if you pull that front brake... You've had it. You've had it. Well, I, where I grew up, there seemed to be a lot of welding going on. And <laughs> so the kids would get bikes 
and either get their fathers or do it themselves. So there was a lot of makeshift stuff going on around that. My dad made a bike for me out of bits and pieces. A, a really nice Carlton racing bike. Well, I mean, down in the south of England, Manish and I were just, we just had shop bikes, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Halfords. But how, when did your interest in, in um, motoring begin? I wanted to be a fighter pilot. All I ever wanted to do, I mean, literally, from when I could look up into the air, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And I found the only sport that kind of made me think about fighter planes was Formula One. Because they're basically, they are just fighters with upside down wings. They don't quite shoot at each other. But if you're a Senna fan, it's kind of like the next best thing. I can tell you, actually, the first Formula One car I really remember sort of staring at was the 1979 Ferrari 312T4 driven by Gilles Villeneuve. And I just gawped at it on TV. I just couldn't stop looking at it. It's just the most in some ways the most eccentric Formula One car of its time and it was just so beautiful. That was it. I was hooked. I mean, you went on to write the screenplay for the film about Senna, of course. But before that, I mean, you must have had... Did you sort of go around and look at sort of cars parked on the streets? Oh, I'd like one of those. Oh, that's like a nice bit of a Ford Anglia there. Did you have moments like that where you thought this is the thing that gets me into cars? Absolutely obsessed with them. And my... Actually... My parents were divorced when I was eight, and my father introduced me to the lady who would be my first stepmother. There were two others that followed, but the original stepmother, she was a lovely paediatrician, actually, and uh, she loved cars. And to break the ice with me, she took me to the Earl's Court Motor Fair in 1976. And I was wandering around with my sister and her, and I saw the first road car that I absolutely fell in love with I'm in love with it today and it was a Lamborghini Countach LP400 and it was beige and there was a blue Espada to its right and I remember this there was an orange Uraco to its left but I just couldn't stop looking at this car and I think I spent the next decade building every single kind of kit when I was a kid I built I think about 144 Airfix models, I think that was the count. Me too, go on, what, you first. I really like a Second World War play, you know, like Luftwaffe ones. But then I really got into British jets, like Venoms and Vampires and Lightnings, and the Lightning was my favourite. I was obsessed with Lightnings. And in fact, there's a really cool little series of books by ex-fighter pilots. And I, you know, read the Lightning one, I think about a year ago. And it's just hilarious because they're single-seaters. But our strategy was so rubbish. He said, what we were supposed to do is scramble, get up to sort of 50,000 square feet, knock out this Russian jet, quickly land, quickly refuel, put two more missiles on it, and do that again. They were supposed to be doing that sort of 20 hours a day because we didn't actually have that many of them. And so that was our kind of... A lightning. Lightning. Lightning was basically two huge jet engines, and it would take off and go straight up which I thought was fantastic. It was like a rocket. Totally agree. Had I been 30 years older, my eyesight didn't go when I was doing my A-levels. That's I what you would have been doing. But, but MGBGT or a Jaguar E-type, basically squadron leader, Panday of whatever squadron, flying lightnings. Interesting choice of career, being a fighter pilot. Was there a role model that you'd seen that you thought, well, I want to be like this person who's the fighter pilot or something like that? No, I don't think so. I just literally love the way they looked. 
it just that was what it was and actually I, I'd spent the first four and a half years of my life in India there were I think even in my lifetime two Indo-Pakistan wars so we had quite a military family my father was a doctor captain in the Indian army I had an uncle who flew helicopters in the Indian Air Force. So we had a bit of a military background. So you'd go to the officers' messes even as a little kid and I, occasionally I could touch one of these planes. I remember seeing a MiG-21 when I was very young and thinking, oh my giddy It's a bit like a lightning. You know, it's got a little yeah, cone sticking it, yeah. out of the front. The, uh, going back to the Lamborghinis, am I right in thinking they're the same sort of Lamborghinis that we might have seen Rod Stewart in at the time, <laughs> driving with, his, with sort of... Yeah a velvet jacket loon pants and yeah. a glamorous model with him yes he had the kind of very miami vice version i think he had an lp 500 s basically the same car but just sort of a little bit um built on steroids i just love the, the the original one so the lines are so pure and i remember apparently um it broke their hearts so they had to put these air boxes on the back to cool it enough but i actually think it gave it a bit of character the guy who designed it, Marcello Gandini, again, absolute genius. In fact, I think five people really worked on that car and they were all in their early 20s and they were all crazy and they put the thing together in six weeks. And I think Ferruccio Lamborghini thought, don't know what they're doing, but nobody could believe the car. When I look at um, cars, you like, I think the first thing that attracts me to the car, I don't know about you or the listener, but it's just the look of it. If it looks like it's a great shape, then I'm seduced by it. You know, whatever lies underneath it, whether it's powerful or not powerful, or the first thing is is the way that it looks and the way that it sort of sits in the curb. And, and would you run across the road so excited to see it? Are there other vehicles that have had that effect on you? Yeah, definitely. I think um, at the exact opposite end of the spectrum, probably a Citroen 2CV, I just think it's just such an extraordinary car. And my very best friend, Max, we were at um, Sixth Form College together. He used to pick me up in his 2CV every morning. It just looked fantastic. He had that sort of roll-up roof. So it's basically a convertible with a sort of, you know, roll-up roof. And I remember, um, I think it's got sort of two horsepower or something, or maybe even only one, and a gear stick that sticks out of the bit. It just looked great. Such an eccentric car. What's the fastest you've ever driven? Have you been on a track? I have. Actually, I have a better answer. The fastest I've ever been driven is by Felipe Massa in a two-seat Formula One car in Abu Dhabi. And it was the end of 2012. They had a track day and I'd gone for the race. And uh, a friend of mine out there um, said, I've got a little present for you. You're going to this this evening. And um, so I turned up at the track and I'd never met Felipe before and uh, he, it's part of their job. They've got to meet people that they've never met before. So he probably thought I was some sort of grand sponsor or something, you know. And uh, so he took me out. The um, Ferrari 458 had just come out. So he said, we will go for a drive in this. So we went round the track in this. And I've been on track days before and it's slow motion to these guys. So he looked at me because I wasn't terrified and he was trying to drift it, difficult to do in that car. And he gave me this little enigmatic smile at the end of the lap. He said, um, I think you will find the Formula One car a little faster. Now, I was supposed to have been driven by either Martin Brundle or Karun Chandok. And a man came up to me and said, sir, do you mind if you go last? today and all about 20 people I said I don't even know what I'm doing yet quite happy to go last so um, I had my medical and I noticed the Ferrari team chief 
who now runs Formula One, leaving. And the reason I was going last was that Felipe had decided that there were two people he personally wanted to drive, but he wasn't insured. So he waited until the team boss went. And I got into this car and it, it was the most incredible thing. So he's sitting in front of you and you have your legs on either side of him. It's just an extended cockpit. And the roll bar is just where your face is. And what they say to you when you get in is, whatever you do, don't look to the side of the roll bar and definitely don't do it under braking. So the first thing I did when we shoot off is look out at the end of the first straight. He hit his brakes. I hit this roll bar. I mean, they decelerate. Even a detuned two-seat Formula One car decelerates from 170 miles an hour to 60 miles an hour in about 100 yards. And it was, it was like literally having a cannonball in your back being shot downwards. But I mean, he did three laps like this. It, I, so he was doing about 170? Just at the end of the straight, it was just about 170 miles an hour. But it's, it's the acceleration, the deceleration that's amazing. And the cornering, I mean, just don't believe how late they break. And this thing's going at 20 seconds a lap slower than a Formula One car would be doing. And, and there's nothing on the road like this. And I have to say, to this day, that was the most absolutely exhilarating experience of my life in a car. You know, it was just, and we became really good mates after that. You see, there's the G-force. Now, you and I would be probably slightly more concerned with the colour of the leather interior that we were being <laughs> gently pushed into when we accelerated just to go down to the sweet shop sort of thing. But of course, I mean, while we're still talking about motor racing, you um, wrote the film about uh, Senna. And what was it that attracted you to Senna's story and, and to his personality? I remember Murray Walker talking about him. And most people sort of went, oh, you know, he's this mega genius, Monaco 84, drove in the rain. That's the day they knew. And I saw him at the end of that season. And Murray Walker did a little roundup of kind of all the drivers and what they would be doing next year. And I saw Senna in his Lotus gear looking at the Lotus he would drive for 1985. And the way he was looking at it, you know, I just remember it to this day. It was not how a normal person looks at anything. He was looking through it. And uh, Murray Walker said in the commentary was, if there's anyone who can win a world championship in their first year in a competitive car, you're looking at him. I just remember him saying that at the BBC. And I absolutely fell in love with him in that moment. I just thought, that is not a driver. That's something very, very special. And, you know, it's one of those things you just, you have a gut feeling about someone and it's absolutely proven. Working Title wanted to make a film about him and the original idea was to do the story of his death. It, was, it would have been quite a powerful film, you know, the last three days of his life. And I remember being asked, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I don't think it'll work. And they're like, well, what do you mean it won't work? And I said, to really understand his death, you really need to understand his life, you know, where he came from, what he did. And that where just did, made... Where, where did he come from? Sao Paulo. Yeah. So he, you know, Brazilian from Sao Paulo, born in 1960. And um, father was a pretty successful, actually, car accessories business. That was his main business. And mum was uh, sort of very middle class Paulista. He had an older sister and a younger brother. He was a hyperactive child, actually, and the only thing that they could do to calm him down was build him a go-kart. So his father built him a go-kart with a lawnmower engine, and he just, his hyperactivity, all of that, just suddenly settled. He just found himself there. 
And so, you know, came to England, early 80s, all very cold, not very upper middle class Brazilian at all. Um, people couldn't pronounce his name, so they'd call him Harry. I don't know how Ayrton becomes Harry, but it does. And um, he just dominated every single formula he drove in until um, he got into into Formula One. And he did it very much on his own terms. And really, I've got to know Bernie Eccleston through a project that I'm doing. Bernie told me a brilliant story about him. He said that when Senna was trying to get a Formula One drive, pretty much every team tested him. So Frank Williams gave him his first test, but Ron Dennis gave him a test. He got a test from Tolman. But Bernie gave him a test and um, he said that on purpose, they just mucked around with the front right suspension, just made a tiny change to it. And uh, Senna was so self-assured. He drove this lap, came in and said, there's something wrong with the front right suspension. I think it's this, this, this and this, and you need to change it. So they all gave each other a bit of a knowing look, changed it, and then he set some unbelievable times. So Bernie tried to sign him. Nelson Piquet didn't really want Ayrton Senna as a teammate, so he said to Bernie, oh, he's rubbish. I wouldn't have him. And then, more amusingly, went to the sponsor and said to the sponsor, well, you don't want two Brazilians in the team, that's not going to help, whatever. And so Bernie let Senna slip through his fingers. Otherwise, it would have been a different story. Mm. What year did he eventually lose his life? 94, May 1st. But my dad was very well motorising, so it would be every you know motorcycles, cars, and we used to go to Centre Pod to see the the drag racing a lot when I was a kid, and I used to love that because that was like space travel on a, a track, wasn't it? Have you ever done any of that? Well, I've seen it. I mean, it's just done. They're mad. Those guys are yeah. actually mad. Ten trillion horsepower. I didn't realise your dad was a keen sort of centre podist. Well, he used to do it. My dad was a motorcycle racist. Motorcycle racist. That sounds really horrible. He was a motorcycle racer or a motorcyclist, but which, uh, yeah, not a motorcycle racist. Which is something quite different. <laughs> but he was, yeah, he did, I think he did the junior TT. You've never been tempted to sort of try uh, uh, racing, have you? I've been, well, I did, uh, I did a programme, a documentary, and I got to ride with my friend Steve Parrish around Thruxton on a Ninja, Kawasaki Ninja, and I did about 140. But what he was telling me is I was going round these hairpin bends, he says, look backwards and you'll go around quicker which is what you really don't want to do you know, naturally. <laughs> At 140 miles an hour. So, yeah. That's a good tip. So, I'll so try drop that, it yeah. down to about 90, then look backwards and you'll go around quicker. Have you ever done that? I've done, no, I've tried the old track day. Was that a train? I think it might have been. That was, yeah. And it might, I think that once a year an, a, a train carrying dangerous nuclear fuel comes through and that would be it. And, and makes the sound of the, yes. the small Hornby train yes, as it comes exactly, past. Yes. But of course, it's not just that sort of transport. It's it's all sorts of uh, transport yeah. and journeys we're interested in here. Yeah, so Manish, where do you go on holiday and on what? Um, my wife's parents have retired to the Caribbean. So mm. the island of Tobago. They have an old home there. So that tends to be the only time my son can see his grandparents. So every Christmas and Easter, we used to get onto those fantastic Virgin 747s with the bubble at the top. And uh, they're not fuel efficient, so those have all been um, done. So it's a, either a Virgin A360s, I think they fly them, or a, tends to be now British Airways 777, 
usually the series 200. And when, when you're there... When... <laughs> I'll tell you what, you weren't expecting that, where you did tell type numbers of the aeroplane you No, I was, I was hoping for, like, you know, so like travels, travels around to to Tobago on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a Morris Minor. Or, I'll know. tell you what they do have. They have a proper long wheelbase Land Rover that's 45 years old that still works. It's white, and it is just the coolest thing. So that's where you go on your holidays. Nice. Have you ever effed off anywhere without a buy your leave <laughs> <laughs> one of my favourite things to do effed off anywhere without a buy your leave oh god I tend to be too neurotic about travelling it's all planned Phileas Fogg of travel that's me start about a year before I've got to travel and stress for the week well it is very uh, anxiety um, creating planning to go away what do you like to take up what do you pack in your bag what useful items do you have the big thing is some form of portable music and some headphones. Always, 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 always for the last 40 years, whether it was a Walkman back in the uh, 80s or I guess just your phone now. I remember I always had an iPod which had tons of music on it. And the other thing, this sounds mad, but actually it's just a Nivea for Men face cream. It's about four quid, but I just have never found anything that... Uh, I always have a, my um, wash bags always packed because I can't bear the stuff that you get in showers. And use, I've, I've been away filming recently and the showers were insipid, just like, you know, like a, 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 a young sparrow's piss. <laughs> just a few occasional We all, we all know that. Yes. <laughs> it had to be a young but, sparrow. Yeah. But, yeah, so like, I need, I need my own requirements for hair washing and so forth. Well, myself, I, I don't really like a shower because you can't read a paper in the shower, you see. Yeah. When, when I'm in the bath, I, I tend to read quite a lot. Yeah. Manuals, uh, ancient manuscripts and so forth. And also it gives you a chance to play with or give trials to any smaller remote control boats that you've got. Yeah. Um, so oh, it sounds like a lot of fun in your yeah, bath time. My bath time for my, is a busy old time. <laughs> but I also, my other travelling tip is that uh, I've got a wash bag and I've been given various glamorous sort of Gucci wash bags and whatever that you have, you know, which are all very nice, but then they tend to be sort of black with a little sort of gold sort of yeah, finish. Right, and all. Right. But actually, they always get left in the hotel rooms because they look like they're part of the hotel room. So now I have very large floral ones. Yeah. And then you, you don't, when you're leaving, you, you, you spot them, you know, you don't yeah. sort of leave them as part of the, the, the hotel. So that's my big tip to everyone. So you stay in hotels that have black silk sheets with gold taps, that sort of thing. Uh, I insist on that, yeah. Black leather sheets. Yeah. <laughs> black leather sheets, how cozy. <laughs> when I stayed in Middlesbrough in 1976, or I think it was 1976 or seven touring with squeeze when we first toured and it was luxury because we weren't sleeping in the back of a van i got to the room which i was sharing and in the room which really cheered me up there was nylon sheets and i noticed there was sort of a rubber sheet beneath the nylon sheets and there was a list of what it cost to be sick if in the bed uh, to wet the bed and i think the highest extra you had to pay was to shit in the bed yeah so well, you had to pay extra. yes yeah and i was thinking what a excellent clientele who <laughs> 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 <You're> said <laughs> do you do a deal for the lot <laughs> <laughs> I should have done. Damn, if only you'd have been there. Yeah, could have done. What a shame. There we are. What's the worst hotel you've ever stayed in, Anish? There was a place when a cousin of mine got married in India. The walls were crawling. It was just one of those. 
and it, it was supposed to be very very nice and i remember they had some kind of radio clock and i did see something underneath i lifted up about a thousand mini cockroaches underneath i i survived that one for 30 minutes i stayed in one in athens which actually did have rats in the room <laughs> it had no there was a bed just a mattress no bedding rats and there was a, a, one light bulb they had a carrier bag around it for a lampshade <laughs> which you, you know and i had to pay i mean I'd, i should have really stayed on the streets it would have been cleaner and nicer no carrier bag around the moon Today. I'm definitely a train person and I, again I think probably India has got a lot to do with it when we were kids and then when we go and visit family you could fly from somewhere like New Delhi to Agra but um, trains were always the way to go in fact my grandfather my mother's father he built a lot of the railways and he built the station in Agra so if you go to the Taj Mahal and you go by train and you get off at Agra Kant station that was my grandfather. When you say he built it, did he design it? Yeah, he, designed, he was an engineer. So uh, yeah. he did all of the engineering. And I remember when we used to take long trips in India, you could get these amazing sort of overnight sort of air conditioned car. You know, it, it was like being in an Agatha Christie sort of, you know, you'd have mm -hmm. the, the porter take your order and, you know, you'd pull up at the station and they'd give you the food and, oh, it's just, love trains. Lovely. Absolutely exactly. love trains. And, you know, the time goes in a different way, doesn't it, on a train. Seven hours, seven hours in a train is very different to seven hours on a plane. But, yeah. I always thought it would be very good for a romantic encounter, although I've never actually had one in person. <laughs> or on a train. Mm. But my father did meet my mother on a train, so, you know, I wouldn't be here. Were it not for that sort of encounter? Well, would you know where that train began and where it ended? Uh, yes, I do. It was around about Charing Cross where they met. And I think he started to chat. And he said to her, I'm only on the train because I normally borrow my father's Aston Martin. Line <laughs> number one, his father never had an Aston Martin. <laughs> but it's being repaired. <laughs> so I'm on the train. But would you like to have dinner tonight? And did your mother believe him? Yes, fell for that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a lovely story, isn't it? Thank you. And I've had encounters on trains. Most interesting showbiz moment. Uh, Bobby Davro came and spoke to me for quite a long time. Uh, also, I was, uh, I was on the train with my wife and we were doing this. You know when you're on a train, you play games which you invent. And I said, right, close your eyes and you have to guess what part of your face I'm pointing at. <laughs> and then at that moment, Roger Daltrey came walking past and uh, I said, Roger, I said, do you want to join in with this game? 
Just all you do is close your eyes, and my, I'll point at part of your face, and you have to say which part it is. And you went, no, I, I'm all right, thanks. <laughs> I'm just going down to the. Going to go and get a cup of coffee. Thank you. Thanking you anyway. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. it's good. I like a train. I used to, of course, get the train to Newcastle. Yeah. When we did the tube program, because it was in Newcastle for maybe three or four years, and I used to get the train with Paula Yates in the morning from King's Cross to Newcastle. In this old station, of course, they had the huge wooden board in King's Cross, and it had all the names of the places that you were going to go to. You know, there'd be Stevenage on the on the you know, and then there'd be York if you were doing it, or Darlington and York and so forth. And then when it changed, when that chain had gone, it would all there would be a wooden clatter, and they'd all move by wood, and they'd be beautifully written. And when they modernised the station, for some reason, some busybody saw fit to get rid of that. But I mean, it was so un, one unnecessary expense, and getting rid of something that worked perfectly well. It had a lovely clattering sound. I, did, I can remember but, that. Clatter. And all the places. You know, Newcastle and Edinburgh, they haven't moved them. <laughs> and the trains are going to the same places. But yeah. suddenly we've got to read them in digital font. And I'm just not happy with that. And are you uh, equally unhappy with the sound of the squeak as the bus driver wound round his, uh, his sign at the front of the, of the, of the double-decker? It, it was another highlight for so me, the, yeah. yeah. I feel robbed of, yeah. You know, because I remember that. It's Brixton, Streatham, you know... Uh, that was a great sound as well. But I do remember that clatter and I, I enjoyed that. That was. Um... Mm. People used to smoke on trains then. Do you remember? Well, they were smoking compartments, weren't they? They were smoking and no smoking compartments, I think. Yeah, that was the... I mean, it was like a plane, you know, on planes, mm. you know, row one and two. At the back, you could smoke, couldn't you? You, you could smoke. But, but the problem was that I think in first class, people used to smoke at the front. So it would drift at you if yeah. you were in the middle from the front and from mm. the back. I mean, you know. The HEPA filters didn't work quite so well in those days. I don't think people... I, didn't, I don't remember ever being bothered by it because there was a smell of fag smoke everywhere. Now, now it's unusual, but, I mean, you went to the cinema and everyone had a fag, and they were stubbing them out in those little dishes at the side of you. And it often masked... In, in the cinema, particularly, it often masked other unwelcome aromas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's for sure. But has anyone ever taken... I mean, have you taken a very long coach ride? Because that is... I once did that. My mum and sister went from London to Glasgow and I have nightmares about it to this day. It just was like being in train spotting. It was just the worst, worst journey. Have you ever been on a greyhound? Uh, I did once, yes. Yeah. But I found it a bit sort of... That's frightening. Rather sketchy people on it. Very, I, very I, sketchy. I include myself in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, I, I remember my first ever trip to New York... I'd come from Canada on a greyhound bus and it was, was full of very sketchy people. But when I got to New York, I saw two, the first policemen I'd ever seen in New York and, and one of them had a great big afro with his hat balanced cockily slightly over to one side on it and they were having a skipping up and down the curb competition. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, this is cool. This is, the cops are cool in America. I remember when Squeeze when it first went to New York, we'd heard all these tales about how dangerous it was. So we were too so frightened, we went out cuddling one another because it was supposed to be the most dangerous sort of murder capital of the, on earth. So we left the Chelsea Hotel or wherever we were staying, literally just cuddling the five of us and our tour manager, I think the six of us, all just cuddling one another, looking behind us, looking in front. And then we were sort of, there was a bar sort of maybe 300 yards away and we thought it might be safe. If we got there, we'd be safe. And so we started to go around the corner and we heard these footsteps. We stopped. We thought, 
probably somebody come to rob us and kill us and then stuck us down a drain or something like that. And it was a very old lady walking her little poodle dog <laughs> who walked past us as we shivered with fear. It's quite an intimidating city the first time you go. Yeah, they've well, ruined no, it now, though, because it's all safe. When we had the premiere of Sano, I remember going to Sao Paulo, and I thought, well, it's just like India. Just got out of uh, the hotel, went for a little walk. Well, this is just great. Came back, and I remember the doorman saying, have you just been for a walk all by yourself? And I said, yes. And he said, do you still have your watch? Do you still have your wallet? I mean, that, that it's really funny because I felt less intimidated in Brazil than I did first time I went to New York. And I think probably the crime difference is, you know, 99,000%. Someone no, said that to you. Have you ever been mugged? I, uh, have I ever mugged anybody? <laughs> <laughs> I was mugged by a, a 12-year-old who had a, a knife and a brick. Ah. And I was going to a party. And I was way, I was in my twenties, way into my twenties. And uh, I just had a bottle of wine, and maybe a box of after eights, <laughs> whatever you take to a party. But I remember this kid who was about twelve had a brick in one hand and a knife in the other, and said, "Give me your bottle." So I went, "Here, here you are, young fellow, <laughs> enjoy yourself." Wouldn't you have had to put either the brick or the knife down though, and then you'd have had it? Well, I, I wasn't taking any chances. <laughs> Quite right. I did throw the brick at me after he cleared <laughs> off. So, Manish, to conclude, uh, what do you think your favourite form of transport is? And we've talked about lots of different things here, but what's your favourite way of travelling about? If I could pick one perfect form of transport, actually, it would probably be an auto rickshaw. Because I just think there's something about those. It's basically a motorcycle, isn't it, with a little shell around it? Yeah. And a bench. I just, the reason, actually, less for me, the first time my son went into a, an auto rickshaw, he was five, and we well, were. Where in do you have them? What sort of. New Delhi. Right. That okay. was where, yeah, that's yeah. where we did it. So it was my, my wife just looked at it and just went, no, 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 far, no, we're not getting in that. Completely unsafe. And I said, no, come on. And my son, at five, it was probably the most excited I've ever seen him in my life. It was just, it was great. And they. They ride them, I mean, it's basically a motorcycle with a shell on, and they ride them as if they're motorcycles, and they buzz through the traffic, and you can get from A to B very, very quickly, and you kind of feel safe. So that's what so, it is. And if it rains. In conclusion, you're going to either go for two CVs or, or motorised rickshaws or super fast jet fighters and and uh, and formula one and, so no and nothing and nothing in between, in between. And nothing in between nothing at all marriage monday thank you so much thank you thank you well there goes manish on his way home, starting off in a rickshaw, yes. then climbing into an English electric lightning jet jet fighter. Yeah, what a way to travel. What a life of contrasts. I think we can only say there ain't no stopping him. No. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was produced and edited by Molly Stewart. Sound engineers with James Stewart and George Latham. I would have thought well, if I'd have, if I'd have joined the area, I wouldn't be a pilot or anything. I'd just be pumping the tyres up, wouldn't it? On the yeah.